0: Okay, we're on number 377. I've mentioned earlier in this book also that he suggested practicing the mental repetition of the Hong Sa mantra while watching the breath, but in the spine instead of in the nostrils. This was something he told me during my first month with him. Watch, he told me, without controlling the movement there in any way. This is an alternate practice to watching the flow of breath in the nostrils. The spine is the trunk of the tree of life. God's joy is the sap flowing through the trunk of the tree. Swamiji has a couple of places in here where he gives these slightly more um, esoteric aspects of the Hongsa teaching. And I shall just read these 378 because it's on the same one. If you want to become a master in this life, then, in addition to Kriya Yoga, you should practice Hongsaw for at least two hours a day. I used to practice it as a boy, as long as seven hours at a time, until I went breathless. You know, he, um, there's, there's these, these different sides to the spiritual path that are, um, that are different for different people. You know, I myself, even though, of course, I practice Kriya and uh, Swamiji, even. Gave me permission to initiate others into it. He knows, and I know, that I've never been very technique oriented. It's just not the way my uh, it's not the way I'm constituted. Um, and other people that I know are just very exact about you know all the aspects of the technique. I know the first time Swamiji gave one of the higher kriya initiations that involved a, a mantra that we didn't know until he taught it to us. He was very, very careful about how exactly it should be pronounced, which was very important. But afterwards he smiled and he said, I did that for Shivani. Because he knew that she had the kind of mind where she would look at it, drill it right down to the bottom and wanted it just to be exactly so. And I kind of got the general story and I felt comfortable with what I'd gotten. Or I, I, I can't say that I was careless, but my mind just wouldn't, didn't go there. But then on other things like an exact philosophical point or some just some nuance of the, a certain side of the teaching, I just can't rest until I absolutely know it. And I, I twist it and I change it until it's just exactly how I want to say it. And it's just everybody moves through the world in a different way. Um, Master said you only have to do, I, I think it was 10% or maybe 1%. I'm not really quite sure which one he said. You only have to do a very small percentage of what he taught, but everybody will do a different percentage. Their their one percent will be different than someone else's, and so that's why he had to teach so much. You know, I I think sometimes it's just the day will come when, you know, one will pick up what, what one wasn't interested in before. I certainly have seen that in all the years that I've been on the path, that... Um, Certain things that don't seem important to me for many years suddenly become very important at a certain point. Certain understandings that were just peripheral suddenly become central. I, I've I've been very impressed by how just all the different pieces that might have passed by lightly at one point um, just suddenly come and it's like the, their timing is just so. So when I see myself having uh, temperamental differences or... Karmic differences than some of my friends have. Um, I've learned over time to to be at peace with it. That we can't we can't swallow the whole spiritual path at once. And I was uh, this morning in another context. I was talking about we can only we can only do what we can do. If you want to be a master in this lifetime, you have to do Hongsaw two hours a day in addition to Kriya. Well, most of us with the lives we live. You know, the hours in the day just aren't there um, because of the rajasic life that we live in America, because of the work we do for Ananda. There's a, a lot of things. So if you, if you take one piece and find that your life doesn't support it, but Master said you should, should supposed to do it. And I see people, um, the only way I can describe it is they get at war with themselves. And they're just kind of at constant war with themselves. And the spiritual path becomes a constant battle against what I'm not doing. Um, And it's a fine line because, you know, the tamasic downward pulling energy is also very serious in our lives and we don't want to just become lazy or casual or self-justifying or presuming on God's will, on God's grace when we're not actually um, doing our part of the equation. So all of those are... um, all of those are serious concerns. That's where the whole spiritual path becomes more of an art than a science. Because you can't just say, if you do these things, then I will get this much realization. And in fact, see, part of what the spiritual... The progress of the spiritual path is you're progressing through the caste system um, a, as an individual and the, 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 the relevant parts of the caste system as, as a, uh, a map for spiritual evolution, is um, well the shudra caste is 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 pure laziness. I mean, not laziness, but but physical in our understanding, not subtle, and we only put out as much energy as we have to, in order not to starve or die. You know, there's just there's no uh, creativity, there's no uh, enthusiasm. We act. Uh, unconsciousness is the greatest pleasure. And we only act if something bad is going to happen to us if we don't, in other words, under the threat of punishment. The, the relevant for this conversation, the vaishya level, which is considered to be the merchant class, is when we're willing to put out energy, but it's always measured, measured in this sense. If I'm a, If I'm an honest merchant, I'll give you a good product, but you have to give me a good price. And if you give me a good price, I'll give you a good product, but you're not going to get the product unless you give me the price. And so it's a trade. So we're always measuring. And as we progress through the vaishya we become very creative, but there's always the question of what's in it for me, and if there's not enough in it for me, then I'm not going to do it. And we can be quite honorable and dynamic and even generous as Vaishas, but we're always weighing and measuring. And then the Kshatriya level is where we begin to act according to principle. And we, we simply do, we, we adhere to the highest principles and that is our satisfaction. There's no I'm going to get from I'm not going to get this back. And and most of us in our spiritual life kind of teeter between Vaisha and Kshatriya. Between Kshatriya and Brahman is where all effort ceases and one simply is in tune with the will of God and just moves without any discipline. Kshatriya has to be disciplined. Kshatriya is the soldier, so a lot of discipline. But here is where we teeter and a lot of times there's a lot of spiritual paths especially more orthodox traditional kind of uh, uh, institutional religions where it's really very vaisha it's that if you go to mass if you do these certain things if you do these practices then you will this will this will come to you and and people on that level of awareness which is moving forward by all means because they're willing to give value For what they get, it it needs to be very clear, and this is where you get the theologies which are very exact. This is where the Jews have the Jews just study the Talmud just all the time, finding out what all the laws are and what the implications of the laws are and what it means. And having been in Israel a couple of times in the last half year, um, and and gotten to know a man, a friend who's a a modern Orthodox Jew. But, you know, he's very exact about it, and he feels very strongly that you, you have to follow God's laws, and it bewilders him that you would not follow God's laws. Of course you would follow God's laws, and there's no, there's no point in having a discussion. He's a very honorable man, and he does, he's you know, just an honorable and an admirable person, but his idea is these are the rules, and you follow them. And how could you possibly be a spiritual person without following these laws? He's not, um, he's not a... a You know, he's not against people who don't. But still, that's just his point of view. You do this and this is what happens. It's very uh, secure. You know where you stand. Of course, as people progress through that, something will happen. This is, you know, it, it gets very challenging if something very bad happens outside the system. And if you followed all the rules and then the result is not what you expect. And that's often either a time of spiritual collapse for people or a time when they discover, well, what they discover is a higher law because the principle that laws exist is not false. It's just externalizing them that becomes the difficulty. I mean, that's what Jesus's whole incarnation was. He was there fighting against this, um, God is the judge and these are the rules. And so when he healed on the Sabbath, he healed someone on the Sabbath and the, the priests were trying to condemn him for healing someone on the Sabbath because you're you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And he answered in two two ways. He said, if one of your sheep falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, you will get him out of the ditch. You won't just leave him in there. But then he also said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, meaning that the rule was made to help us. It's not like the rule exists and we have to conform ourselves to it. I mean, there's a, a huge teaching in there which is all about... Where what is the what is the place of external rules? Um, they have in, in Israel one of the, the sites that's related to the Essene community. They have the various things about the Essenes, and they're all extremely rule oriented. And it's supposedly historical, but I mean, I have no reason to say it is, and I have so little regard for authority. Sometimes I get myself in trouble, <laughs> but uh, it's like the way they try to characterize the life, it's not human. You know, people, people would live, nobody would want to live in such a rigid, rule-oriented way. It just, you would rebel against it. Uh, Swamiji has often commented in founding Ananda that he started with people and he under, he started with human nature and then tried to uplift and guide human nature instead of starting with rules and then trying to make the people fit the rules. Because, when you make the people fit the rules, you can make it last for a while. Catholics made it last for a long time because if you didn't follow it, you were eternally damned. And that was pretty scary. So people were able to discipline themselves in the moment because eternal damnation was pretty tough. Um, St. Teresa of Avila, when she was eight years old, realized that if she uh, was martyred, then she would have an eternity of bliss. Um, So at eight years old, she ran away from home, heading for the place where she thought she could be martyred. She just calculated it, and it seemed like that was the the quickest and the the cheapest way to get what she wanted, which was eternal salvation, was just to go get her head cut off in some some, uh, barbaric manner. Of course, her father came and got her and brought her home again. But it was the natural way to think. You know, if I can get this, how can I get it? But on the Kshatriya side we start just living for the principle. And that's when it gets a little, a lot more subtle because it, it's not so easy to quantify in every situation what the principle is. What is it that I'm really supposed to do? And, we, and then we also get caught, even when we do the right thing, there's a tendency to want to remind God and to remind other people that we've done the right thing. And so it's, it, 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 why am I doing this? You know, do I want, is it to get recognition, which is a Vaisa way of thinking? Is it to prove that I'm good? Is it to make me secure in heaven? You know, it's all these different questions. Or am I doing it entirely for the principle? And it's not for any external reality. And then we have to find our way through practice hong Sau two hours a day. You know, there was a, a friend of mine who went into seclusion for a year. And um, he said it was so wonderful because he had time to practice everything, just everything. He, he, would, he would stare into the rising and the setting sun, which, you know, there's just these wonderful different techniques that Master has given us that in the course of a normal life, you just have to put them aside, because you have to winnow out among the things that you're looking at, the ones that actually resonate. So he said it was so much fun, because every time he learned about anything, he could just go practice it, because he had 24 hours a day for 365 days to just do whatever sadhana he felt like doing. Now, I myself, I couldn't be in seclusion for 365 days. I just wouldn't be able to remain dynamic, because I have to serve. That's just where my uh, flow of energy comes, and it's a perfectly valid path, supported by meditation, or or you meditate and support with a little service. It just depends on which way you orient yourself. Master himself said, you know, attunement alone can move you all the way to God-realization. But attunement also means following the Guru's teachings. So, Swami includes in here, as well he should, you know, practice hong in the spine, because then you have just interiorized the whole. And then, he says, that, that the... The spine is the trunk of the tree of life and God's joy is the sap flowing through the trunk. You, and it's um, it's so fascinating in meditation because, you know, we start with our physical body. You know, all of these instructions, are we watching the breath in the nostrils, we're watching the breath in the spine, elsewhere he talked about moving the forefinger back and forth. And all of it... Um, we're in this physical body and this, this seems to be our access point to the life force. And so Master says things like like this, like the trunk of life. He also says, the only place God can be experienced is in the human nervous system. Which just is such, to my mind, it's partly because it's so unpoetic. But it it's still, it's an astonishing statement. But what he's actually talking about is the true nature of the of the human nervous system? Because in my mind, when I say those words, it conjures up, the, you know, the 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 body and the nerves, and I think of an autopsy or uh, uh, an illness or a surgery where there's all this physical um, physical gunk. Is the only thing I can think of. Master said, you know, sometimes if you if you feel attracted to someone of the opposite gender and you're not. It's not inappropriate or you're trying to not follow that energy at all. He says, just think of them with their skin off. (laughs) Which I hope... He said, so-and-so looks so attractive to you. Just think of them with their skin off. He says, it's really horrible. (laughs) And that's just... I mean, really, that's just such a blunt and marvelous way to look at it. Um, But what happens sometimes when I hear these physiological things and related to the body, I think of the body with the skin off, and it's hard to see the divine, what he's talking about. But what, of course, happens when you really go into those states is that you're, you're out of the physical world altogether. So when he's talking about the spine is the tree of life, he's not at all talking about anything that we think of when we say the word spine. He's talking about the, the pattern of energy that exists there, of which the body is the shadow, but not the, not the reality. It's really literally the shadow of the real thing. So what happens to us when we we use the body, which is what, you know, to be a yogi is to deal with what we have and try to work with what we have. And what we have is that we find ourselves tied to this physical pattern. And so we have to start with that physical pattern. I mean, the, the, uh, the ultimate Vedantist simply... Rejects the reality of the physical world altogether, and you, you, you move through the world without ever uh, condescending to, to really consider its reality. The yogi, by contrast, and this is what Krishna says be a yogi because it's easier. <laughs> the other path is very, very difficult. It's okay, I'm in a body, so I'll set my body down, I'll see the physical breath, I'll trace the physical breath to its origin within my body, and then from that I will be able to transcend. Because this this physical thing holds us so strongly. Someone who came near dying told me afterwards, he said, you know, it's very hard to get out of your body. He said, because the tendrils of karma are extremely um, insidious and numerous, and they they sort of have you. And just before Paula died, like 45 minutes before she left her body. Paula was my friend that, that I've written about in my book about Swami Kriyananda, the first book. And uh, she died consciously and beautifully in, a, uh, in front of about 30 of us whom she had invited to be with her to help her transition. And when she was at the last part of transitioning, and she'd been in the hospital for three days. And uh, she sort of did this uh, little little blessing ceremony reading Whispers from Eternity, and um, all of us had a moment of personal relationship to her. And then, sort of, most of us, sort of, we were all around. We sort of went to sleep. And she'd been having supplemental oxygen the whole time, and without any fanfare at all, I noticed that she took it out. Which, of course, was a real sign. And then, not long after, she woke us all up, um, because she was going to leave. I mean, it was really like she knew it was time. She took the oxygen off. Um, it, I, most people didn't notice because we were just all doing other things, but I, I tend to have a very detailed awareness of things. Um, but then she said something like, this is very hard. She said it sort with a little surprise, with just a little bit of a catch in her voice. This is very hard. You have to help me. And then we did. We all started chanting Aum. But but when my other friend mentioned that to me, that it just wasn't that easy to get out of his body. It wasn't time either. But it wasn't that easy. I know um, when Ramakrishna's... Not Ramakrishna, but Ramana Maharshi. Ramana Maharshi was a very ascetic, um, highly evolved soul who lived in southern uh, India. He lived at Arun, Arun Arunchala, which is a, a mountain that is said to be an incarnation of Shiva in that area. On the altars, they have a little model of this mountain. And he lived, had his ashram at the base of the mountain, had a cave halfway up the mountain. And he was very austere. Um, I never saw him, but I've, I've been to his ashram and it's very powerful. Uh, his mother came and lived with him at the end of his life. Let's see, now, trying to get this straight. There was a mother and an advanced disciple, and now I'm not quite sure which was which in the story, but the point is, I think it was the disciple who died first. And Ramana Maharshi was with him the entire time as he was leaving the body. And he was helping him transition through the spiritual eye and not get caught at the medulla where the ego is. And so he was helping and helping, and he, he, he helped him through. And the man left his body... And then Ramana Maharshi, you know, walked away from him because it was done. But it was a little too soon and he couldn't quite hold the freedom and some karma caught him and so he would have to reincarnate again. This is what Ramana Maharshi said. And uh, so when his mother died, he stayed there much longer <laughs> so that, they, that he was sure that it was free. I mean, you, you can see it if we if we just even watch what distracts us in meditation or if you think about anything you know one has moments where one is one completely transcends and then one has moments where that which you were transcending yesterday suddenly has you in its grip again so it's not so clear cut so you can imagine how one could be very very elevated and then a, you know a thought could come across and whether or not you're able to transcend it or whether it pulls you down again would be a very subtle, you know, very subtle reality. It was a very interesting story. I was always extremely intrigued by it. So when Master's talking about, you know, going into the spine and just watching the breath, what we're doing is we're cutting our ties with all of those multitudinous, you know, immeasurably large number of karmic threads. You know, every, every little desire, every little hurt feeling, every little disappointment, um, we, we don't have to be overwhelmed about, by it because it can all be washed away by a river of grace. But partly that's what we're doing when we're getting really deep into the spine and just watching and feeling that breath is that all? all the rest of it which spins around it becomes very distant to our reality, and literally, our self-definition shifts from this collection of karmic experiences to this solitary reality of the breath. There's this Swami, and I don't know if he's still alive. He probably is. His name is Swami Shankarananda, and he's in, he lives in Rishikesh, and he's a he's a Kriya yogi through a disciple of Sri Yukteswar, and he has a what's called the Kriya Yoga Temple in Rishikesh. He's a very good man. He came to visit us. He came to visit Swami Kriyananda some time ago. Yeah, yeah, of course, Swami must have been still here. Yes. And he gave a satsang. And it's hard for visiting sadhus to give satsangs at Ananda, especially Ananda village when Swami Kriyananda was still there, because well, Swami Ananda, who's a disciple of Sivananda, um gave, gave us a beautiful compliment, but it was also true. He sat down to give a satsang at Ananda, and Swami Kriyananda was sitting there with him. And he said, I really don't know what to say. He said, I can't think of a single thing that Swami Kriyananda has not already taught you, which was just really a sign also of his graciousness. And then he proceeded to entertain us for uh, he, he could be very humorous. But it was true. And so when Swami Shankarananda was gonna come and give a satsang, it might have even been about Kriya. I'm not sure about that though. I wondered I wondered what he would teach, because he too is a very gracious man, so he would not have he would not have made the error of thinking that we needed something from him. But his entire satsang was about breath. And he just he just talked about how absolutely everything is reduced to breath. And it was such a marvelous simplification of the entire spiritual path. And I've thought of it a lot because my mind tends to go toward um, intensely challenging life circumstances, undoubtedly karmic memories of imprisonment or primarily concentration camps, which is pretty obvious being born after just after World War II to a Jewish family, it would be something you might think about. Although we had no ties in Europe still, it's just always been part of my thinking. So a lot of my life I have I have tried to figure out how, how I would cope. If, it's not even almost if, but almost when. It's not really like an obsession. It's just sort of a fact, you know, that this happens to my people, so I, I needed to be ready for it. Also. Just strictly speaking in a spiritual sense, um, uh, at least what I've seen in my life, is that whatever, now I remember a thought that I had from a long time ago, and now I can bring it back in, whatever point I reach on the mountain, and even if I feel like I've progressed a certain amount, I'm always impressed by what's left, the difference between whatever little bit I have in what's possible is infinite, <laughs> really, literally. Um, so even if, you know, things are going well, or even if one seems to be coping well, I, I find it a valid spiritual exercise to project myself into a, a situation much more challenging than whatever I'm facing. Just even to see with imagination if I could cope with it. Presumably, if if such a situation is ever thrust upon me, the grace to deal with it will also come, or I'll struggle and grow from having to cope with it. But his talk about breath was a very interesting, practical answer to that whole speculative way of thinking that's always been part of my nature. Because you always have your breath until you're not in your body anymore and the more one has defined one's reality by breath the freer you are in all circumstances so it's not just a question of i mean well it, it partly explains you want to become a master you have to you have to practice so you have to be so engaged and identified with your breath that literally all other identities fall away so if one has no status if one has no clothes if one has no food if one has no friends um, if one has no future it's just but one st- one is still has one's breath so who am I so you can see the extraordinary power of developing uh, the capacity to reduce your 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 reality to your breath and then let everything else follow from that so uh, you know the the the, the the teachings of these masters are so subtle this is also what I've seen well here, let me I don't want to lose this other point. The other point that i I was contemplating earlier today was just simply it really doesn't make any difference where you are on the spiritual path, but it's very important to understand how far you have to go in other words, how high the mountain is the The only thing that's really dangerous on the path is not to fail and fall and be just slithering around in, in very low consciousness. The difficulty is if you say that what you are is all there is to achieve. Which people do to a surprising extent. They'll just feel that this is enough, you know, that I've, I'm, I'm real good already. And, and it's a balance point because you don't want to feel terrible, but you always want to know what real freedom is. I, I've, in, in the last, I don't know, few years... I've just begun to understand Swami Kriyananda's consciousness way more than I did when I was with him, and God knows I had absolute reverence for him. But I've begun to understand how he perceived the world a lot more. I just I tried to understand, but I was I was too far away from it, too 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 attached to my own preconceptions is what I would say. It's not I don't feel it's like I've come closer to him in consciousness but i've had a lot of my misconceptions dissolved and and to realize the level of freedom that the masters live at you know when swamiji sat contemplating master's consciousness just trying to he he talks about it it's either in here or it's in the path sitting in front of master just trying to get his own awareness around master's infinity and master just well, two times. Once he was trying to do that and Master just walked over and handed him an apple <laughs> just the sort of you know and the other was just saying to him, If you knew my consciousness, if you if you really could share who I am, it's so so vast and so different. But going back to, to becoming just the breath is the beginning of that. And the breath is always with us until life itself is gone. But as long as it's there and you know, it's so um When I've been with people who were dying, you know, the breath is everything. It's so uh, magnificent and thrilling, really, to see how the definition of a person just becomes whether they're still breathing or not. And I've been there multiple times when people exhaled for the last time. And once that's done, it's just finished. Same body, same face, same everything. But once that exhalation is, that final exhalation, it's it's an infinity of difference. It's quite something. So the Hongso is the doorway to it all. So, 379. The master was not generally in favor of hypnotism. It is all right sometimes, of course, he said, for medical purposes. Otherwise, it is generally best to avoid it. Anything that causes a diminution of consciousness is not good. If the will is placed even temporarily under the control of another, it can become weakened. Magnetism is better. Its influence is expansive to the consciousness. Magnetism is what yogis use when they help people." That's the real essence of this. Then here's a funny story. There was a student of the master's who practiced hypnosis, more or less for fun. The master persuaded him to stop the practice. One day, the master said, we were both at a party. I happened to look over and saw this man speaking to a group of people. I also saw a young woman who was evidently opposed to everything he said. Later on, I saw that same woman following about like a puppy. I said to him afterwards, I thought you promised me not to do that anymore. I know, he admitted, but she was heckling me. I got fed up with it, but I won't do it again. The master laughed at this recollection, but warned us also to be respectful of the free will of others, even when they oppose us. So I think it's important here, because this is confusing to people, because there's a whole sort of psychological practice nowadays which uses which they call, which they call hypnotherapy, and because Master spoke so strongly against hypnosis, I've had people who are part of this path, who, are, who practice what they, they call that and they get very uneasy. I'm, I've never taken any of these courses or anything like that. But when someone who was certified in something called hypnotherapy, I asked her to explain to me really exactly what it was that she was practicing. And it, it, it appeared to be more like deep relaxation and affirmations. Uh, as compared to what Master was talking about, Master is talking about when he talked about hypnosis, is more like what you see a stage magician do, where you get three volunteers up there, you put them into some kind of a trance, and they, they cluck like chickens, and you know, and at a, a certain point on the clock, they'll start reciting a poem, where where they have lost um, the conscious capacity to make decisions, and someone else is imposing on their awareness. Um, something that they themselves didn't choose. And that's what Master felt was really dangerous because it weakens the will, it weakens the will of the person who's being hypnotized, it invades their privacy, and it's it's bad for the person who's doing it because he's using his willpower to dominate the, the will of someone else and all of it is tremendously unhealthy. So if anyone, you know, who, who hears this later on has questions about it, That is the question. So even with the hypnotherapy where you go into a state of deep relaxation, the question is whether someone is imposing on you. And I know there's some kinds of, you know, people will be hypnotized to give up smoking or something like that. But if it's not your own willpower, if it's imposed upon you, and you're just going to have to, if you have a question about that, you're going to have to experiment and meditate on it yourself as to whether or not someone else's will is running your life. Yeah, and it's a little unnerving, but if we find that we can't make changes ourselves, it's tempting. And he says hypnosis for medical purposes. I think around the time that Master was living, they were experimenting or using, hypnotizing people so they wouldn't feel pain. But that would be another form where your, um, your actual perception and consciousness is really shifted by someone else's power over you. So then Master talks about magnetism, which is what the masters use. Magnetism is its a very subtle point. And not all people who put themselves out as spiritual teachers themselves have such a clear distinction about it. Magnetism is when something is so uh, inspiring to you that you, you, you are drawn to lift your energy up into it. And there's definitely an influence, but it's an influence that makes your will stronger, rather than dominating your will. I mean, it's easy for me to talk about this because of all the time I spent around Swami Kriyananda. What I loved about being with him was his magnetism. It, his, his magnetism was so um, dynamic that whenever I was with him, you know, I became like that. And I began to find out, I really literally began to find out who I could be. But, but what, I, what I got from him did not leave me when I left him. You know, hypnosis—you become dependent on the person. Magnetism—you become transformed. And I know in one context, because those of us who have had leadership positions through Anand, everybody's kind of has to figure out how to deal with their position. And there was a, there was different phases, and there was one person who was very strong, and people could do a lot in relation to that person, but when they left that company. They tended to to fall far, you know. Just they weren't able to sustain it because it was that person's willpower that was keeping everyone going. And it's a very fine line because if you have a lot of willpower and a lot of energy, you can bring people. But that's quite different than when somehow, in a more subtle way, you awaken in them their own capacities. And so people who don't understand when Ananda was being uh, vilified in all sorts of ways, and Swami Kriyananda was being vilified, because he was strong, people assumed he was domineering. And it was very difficult to understand that what he was strong in was his enthusiasm, his joy, and his unconditional love for people. And in the presence of that enthusiasm and joy, and in the presence of that unconditional love, you kind of woke up to your own potential. I mean, I, I remember in one way, this was, this was not entirely magnetism, but partly, when I was my first two years when I was working, running the kitchen at what was the meditation retreat, and every Sunday we had our Sunday services there, it was the only temple we had and it was the only retreat we had, and Swamiji started giving Sunday service every other Sunday. And we, we always cooked lunch and then served lunch and, and the whole community would have lunch together on Sunday. So, I was in charge of that cooking. And every time that Swamiji was giving service, I would, I would plan and I would make as beautiful a meal as I was capable of making. On the weeks when he didn't come, I would just serve whatever I happened to have on hand. <laughs> and it was pretty dramatically different. You know, it was just the family, so I would just serve the family. Um, but then one week I realized that I really enjoyed making something really beautiful. And that I really didn't enjoy just being haphazard about it. And so I started making, I started doing the same thing whether Swami was physically present or not. So in a sense it was the result of his magnetism because his magnetism caused me to want to put out more energy. And what I discovered from that experience was that I enjoyed putting out more energy. But that was really my decision. No one forced that upon me. It was just I had the experience, and I enjoyed the experience and uh, just in general, you know, in his company, I would become someone that I liked better than the person that I was when I was outside of his company, and that was the effect of his magnetism on me. It was able to to awaken my better self once I experienced I wanted to be it if it was just imposed upon me if i was if I was Oppressed by someone else's energy, even if I behaved well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know what it felt like to be like that, which is what the difference between hypnotism and magnetism, or, or uh, uh, you know, someone who just who forces you with their willpower, which is not really quite hypnotism, but it's a kind of imposition of will. Hypnotism is just taking it, you know, a step further. But there are teachers ashrams, you know, where everybody does what they're told. It sort of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. And everybody behaves because you can't be there unless you behave. Whereas the Ananda's always been a lot more free form. We just don't have many rules. People, it's held together by magnetism, that's all. The magnetism of it holds people in it. I remember a woman who came here a number of years ago and she was a very, um, she was a businesswoman. she was very successful, she was very good at interacting and making things happen, and uh, working the room, you know, which is a phrase. And she'd been in another church, and she'd liked it, but she got attracted here. And, you know, she'd been part of it. She knew how, how to operate. She came here, and she just tried as hard as she could to operate within the congregation in a positive way. Just make friends, make contacts, you know, introduce herself, very outgoing. She said it just was like, she said she felt like Teflon. She couldn't make a connection in any direction with anyone, and she couldn't figure it out because she knew she was good at this, (laughs) and she was very likable, very attractive, and she said she finally gave up, and she tried to make a connection with the masters on the altar. She said as soon as she started making a connection with the masters on the altar, suddenly she started making lots of connections with everyone else, which was a very, it was a very interesting way to articulate it. Because it's, we're all held together by our, our shared magnetism toward these gurus, and that makes our family. It's not, we're not a horizontal bonding. The horizontal is the result of the vertical. So that's magnetism. Magnetism is an essential part of everything that we do. When Mas- Master held SRF together, held the ashram, everything he did, just by his magnetism. And it was in many ways chaotic. Chaotic. Um, it it just wasn't organized because it didn't need to be and in many ways Swami says later I've written this in the book I'm about to publish about Swamiji that uh, it looked like it was chaotic but it wasn't chaotic at all and Master didn't want all these organized levels of authority between himself and people he wanted everyone's energy to be connected directly to him but then by their shared attunement with him then they could work together as a group. And that's exactly what we still have. We work by our shared attunement. And, not, and I've, I've often said that people at Ananda do not have authority because of position. And we do not um, give people... We do not offer... People do not offer loyalty because of position. They offer it because of magnetism. And most people who have a position have magnetism. But it's their magnetism that gives them um, influence, not the position that they have. I, when I was working on the publication of The Path, which was 1976, and uh, there was a you know process of, of proofreading and checking and all this thing that had to be done, and there was one person who really wanted to have a lot of, uh, an opportunity to review and approve, and but they were very hard to work with, so nobody really wanted to work with them. And they did have something to offer and it, and it was helpful, but it was also very difficult. So, so the person came to me and wanted me to make everybody relate to, um, to that person and just not allow anything to go around I said, you know, I could make as many rules as I like and they would still find a way around you. <laughs> I said, you have to make yourself useful. Make yourself useful to people and then we don't have to make rules. If we just have to make rules, then it's not going to work. Um, we, we found a happy medium in all of that. But I realized that at the time. Because, you know, people are, are clever and they, they won't be coerced, especially not Ananda. It's just when I was having to represent Ananda to the greater community at the time when we were being vilified, and Swami Kriyananda was being intensely criticized for being an abusive leader, I used to, at first I would answer it very seriously. And finally, I actually began to answer it humorously. I said, Just come to one meeting, just one. <laughs> you'll see. It's like you've never met such a group of scrappy individualists as you'll find. I said, It would be a relief if somebody were just in charge telling us what to do, because it just was so silly. But that's how people think. Anyway, okay. Number 380. The other part of the story about about the hypnotizing is how Master responded. He told him not to do it. He says, "Naughty boy." he says, "Yes, sir, but he was bothering me. But then even when Master tells it, he laughs about it. He doesn't you know have this huge moral outrage. How dare he disobey me? how you know it was just like people he, master enjoyed the human comedy, and Master also had a very realistic sense about how people change. And he also had a very realistic sense that, you know, um, uh, merely because someone doesn't conform exactly doesn't mean that they're not a good disciple. It just means that they're on their way to becoming good disciples. And there was a situation at, uh within Ananda once, in the very beginning of the time that we, that we were beginning to develop other centers and so on, it was the early 80s, and I... Was going up to Seattle a lot. We didn't have anything center there. We didn't really have. We had a center in San Francisco and Sacramento at the time. But then this uh, group started in Seattle, which was started um, spontaneously by, by, by one man in particular who was local. It wasn't, it wasn't a sign from Ananda Village, that came later. But this man spontaneously was very dedicated and had a lot of magnetism and charisma. He started a group, and, but uh, he had his own ideas. And I was going back and forth up there, and uh he made himself spiritual he, he called himself Ananda, but then appointed himself and he incorporated and made a you know a religious a church really a religious corporation and uh and he appointed himself spiritual director for life, but he called it Ananda, so it was a little dicey, so eventually um it it was necessary for him to come and talk to Swami about what he was doing and what was appropriate and what wasn't appropriate. And uh, I remember saying, when I was trying to explain it, I said, you know, the path of Ananda is very wide, but it does have edges. (laughs) It is possible to fall off the edges. I think making yourself spiritual director for life is an edge that, you know, you've fallen off. So he came and talked to Swami, and they had a long and very interesting discussion. And, um, you know, Swami, they discussed lots of things. Swami wasn't at all... uh, he didn't scold him or anything like that. But at the very end he said, you know, if you're going to make yourself spiritual director for life, probably better not to call yourself Ananda because that's my position. <laughs> and uh, um, So the guy went and changed the name. He, he still, And so he made it his own thing, which was fine, and it was we all worked together. Um, after he left, Swami said, no one with any spunk is going to sit there and wait to be told what to do <laughs> he said anybody with any spirit is just going to go ahead and do what they think they ought to do and he said i'd much rather have a man like that than the one who just waits to know what the rules are which was which was swami kriyananda that was really it i mean this guy people were horrified in many ways there was this huge hoo ha about it but swami just thought well you know he's he's out of line and he's He's, but he's, at least he's doing something. So um, he had, Swami had a, a, an easy understanding of human nature. He didn't panic and feel that, that any initiative had to be suppressed if it went outside the lines. Which is how Master's talking about this. You know, don't hypnotize people. It's not a good thing to hypnotize people. But he laughed because the guy couldn't resist doing it when he was being heckled. But then here's the last line too, which is also important. But warned us also to be respectful of the free will of others, even when they oppose us, because what he's also talking about, I mean most of us can't hypnotize someone at will, but is the desire to try to squelch opposition with your willpower, which is tempting because people heckle you, and it's annoying, and you you just or if you have a position, you want to use your position to and and he didn't he doesn't say that you can't take a stand that you can't you know issue a requirement that you can't separate the wheat from the chaff but you have to be respectful of the free will of the, of others even if they oppose you people may have a perfect right that's why swami dealt with that man he was you know he didn't really oppose what he was doing he didn't scold him he just said however you know this is where the line is that's my position and if you want that position then you, you can't you know, we can't both have it, and I have it already, so you're going to have to sort out what you're going to do. But it was, it was so respectful of his free will, but it was still very definite. And sort of that's, that's the very fine line of excellent spiritual leadership and excellent spiritual living that all of us really have to cultivate because people are annoying. And sometimes it's really hard... And I want to I want to go back to this. Swami did not have endless patience with people's negativity. It would be extremely wrong to say that he did not. There's a phrase that I loathe that I hear a lot: "Hold space for all points of view." He was very definite, but in his definiteness and even in his firmness, and sometimes even in his, um, you know, drawing lines that people had to make decisions about which way they were going to go. Um, he he that you never. He never felt that he had a right to take away from them their position or that they didn't have a right to feel the way they felt. There was a man who just really disliked Swami. It was really a, fo- a complex for him, incredible complex. and went on for years and years. He was an outspoken critic of us during the years that we had so much trouble. And Swami met him at a concert or something and just walked right up to him and started talking to him, invited him over for tea, actually. <laughs> and uh finally and he he the guy was not interested in coming to tea but swami just said you know even if i were the devil my, devil himself it's just not your problem it's it's you know it's between me and god it's not between you and god and it was still he was just very respectful it's like trying to help him not feel this way he didn't try to argue him down how dare you he didn't use any willpower he just respected him, but suggested to him that this was not really a very good idea. And the guy resisted him completely, just said, basically, I don't know why I feel that way, but I do, karma from somewhere. But Swami later speculated that he said he didn't. He wasn't certain, but he was pretty sure after that the man never publicly spoke out against Swami again, which I I hadn't remembered. In fact, it was years later that Swami commented that, you know, he thinks that he's pretty sure that's true. He never changed his tune, but he stopped uh, making himself the spokesperson for that negativity. So something helped. All right, let's take a few minutes. The master was once... This is number 380. The master was once speaking of a certain rich person. There are two kinds of poverty, he remarked. Some people wear rags because they can't afford better clothing. Others, however, even though they go... In limousines, wear rags of spiritual poverty. I think that's pretty self-evident what he means by that. But it's the, you know, when uh, it's the myth of materialism. When, uh, when uh, in the very early years, we didn't have much, and uh, Swami had this car that we had gotten from an air force, air force uh, surplus auction was this blue Chevrolet. and They actually bought two, $75 each, one to cannibalize for parts and one to use. This was like in the 70s when cars were very different. And the car faintly said Air Force on the side, so we always called it Air Force One. But uh, it was just a big old car. And we came in it to San Francisco for... they, They used to have these programs called Meeting of the Ways where all of the prominent spiritual teachers in the country would all gather in San Francisco for these three-day things. And uh, Swami was coming to one, and there was a a reception at some very well-to-do mansion somewhere in San Francisco for all the teachers before the program. And I was part of Swami's small entourage, so we all went. And we arrived a little bit late, and it was a little hard to find a parking place, and there were... Mercedes and limousines and Cadillacs and maybe even a couple of Rolls Royces. You know, it was there were a lot of really nice cars. And we pull up in this total junker, you know, which was was a great car. It worked well. It was spacious. It had a big trunk. It was comfortable. Um, but Swami, when he when he, we parked the car, he said, "I have to get a better car." And he said because, in he said in India. They would respect me for driving this car. He said, but in America where money is so much easier to come by, if I can't drive a better car than this, they will think there's something wrong with my teaching and what I'm doing. And he was really right. And then he went out and he, uh, he bought a Ford. <laughs> he bought this kind of plane. I mean, it was actually it was very attractive lines and it was very comfortable and had a big trunk and it was a comfortable ride. But it was just right middle range. It, it looked like a nice car, but it was really just an ordin- a Ford car. So that that put him right where he felt he should be. But he was Swami was just very conscious of the whole picture. You know, he didn't he didn't want to appear pretentious to be in something that was too nice. But he also knew that he couldn't really just relax into what might be natural to him because he had a responsibility to Master's work, which is which is really the definition of all of us. We have a responsibility not really a question of what we prefer, it's what is needed in order to further Master's cause. So, Master's just making the obvious point. Don't imagine that people are better off just because they're financially better off. Swami, you know, there's more suicides among rich people. That's not because being rich makes you unhappy, but because if you don't have wealth, you can, you can work toward it because you can imagine that it will fulfill you when you get it. But when you get what you think is going to make you happy and it doesn't make you happy, that's when despair really sets in. And so that, it's a very interesting point. Which is, you know, it's just, uh, that's how this, you either, you either become despairing or you're forced to think more deeply about life. So I remember when a, a couple of people that I knew had uh, psychiatric breaks, psychotic breaks from reality for a period of time. In both cases, it was only temporary, but it was a big, a big break from reality that required a cycle of uh, uh, rest and repair before mental balance was restored. In both cases, I, I said to Swami, I felt that it was a, a spiritually induced crisis. And because sometimes people say that all mental breakdown is spiritually induced, but that's not true. A lot of mental breakdown is, bye-bye, I'm out of here, I can't cope. (laughs) And I mean, that's existential in a sense, but it's not necessarily elevated. It's just, it's a perfectly understandable, I think it's a perfectly understandable reaction (laughs) to the unbearable nature of life. But Swami himself said that there is a stage on the spiritual path where he said it's an, an inevitable stage on the spiritual path where you come up to the edge of the abyss and you realize what's going to be asked of you and you just turn back and just try to have a holiday because you, you can't go forward, you can't go back either, so you just go sideways and just check out for a time because it's too much. I mean, I, I feel it. Um, I feel the temptation of it. I think I've spoken about this before, that's just the way my mind tries to escape. Whatever drug addiction and suicide I've been through is a little farther in the background, uh, karmically. But what's closer to the surface is just go into a world of my own making, create a subconscious universe so I don't have to deal with this one. Because the... um, the absolute challenge of the spiritual path is just sometimes more than I really want to deal with. I just want it to be different. And it's very... I, I say that with a great deal of sympathy. And just... You don't have to be hard on yourself or hard on your friends when they just take a holiday. Um, but then you have to come back. It, th- there was a there was a huge point very early in my spiritual life, like nineteen twenty. Um when I I, I I came to that abyss again, and I just, I stood there looking out the window in the apartment I was living in in San Francisco. This was just, probably just before I met Swami Kriyananda, or just after. Probably was just before, because just after I wouldn't have felt like this. Just before. And I, I, I stood and looked out the window and, and tried to decide whether I should just fl- flip out again. <laughs> you know, I just like... And then I had this picture... That, you know, I would have this breakdown and I would start behaving really strangely. And as friends of mine had already done, I would behave very strangely, you know, doing just weird, disconnected things from objective reality. And eventually I would be committed into some psychiatric ward and I would be in the psychiatric ward for a long time. And then gradually I would probably get better and then eventually I would be released and eventually I would be standing here looking out the window (laughs) and nothing would have changed except a lot of time would have passed and I would be real tired. So I you know, I decided not to because I knew it wouldn't work. And, and actually, that's how we overcome all desires. I mean, having a mental breakdown is just a desire to have a certain comfort and satisfaction. I mean, it's not different than buying a Cadillac or um, overeating. It's just a desire to find a way to feel better than I feel right now. And hopefully to feel better without having to face into the incredible challenge of actually transforming my consciousness. So it's all the same. It's just all temptation. And that's how desire is overcome. So Master said that any de- anything you no longer want to do is because you've tried it. And that's really something when you think about it. And And there's a lot of things, all of us, really just are not inclined to do. I can I can understand the attraction of them, but I'm just not inclined to do it. Because, really, I have been there, I have done it, I have tested it to see if it works, and it doesn't, and so therefore there's just no point in doing it anymore. But, but he said, Master said, we have to all go through it. Which is really amazing when you think about it. Really amazing. When you think about all the possible ways... People can delude themselves. Which is why once you get to be a disciple of a master and have Kriya Yoga where you're, you're willing to just dissolve the karma, you're, you're not... See, what happens with us when we're up to Kriya and up to on the spine, and everything we're talking about, is that we actually really want to get rid of that karma. See the thing about all of those delusions is that we like them, you know, we just do. I, I feel it. I mean, my my delusions are all mental—not all, but my my big delusions are mental, mental and emotional. And I can feel in myself that I want to stay. I want to stay mad. I want to stay sad. I want to stay mistreated. I don't want to overcome it because there's. It's it's like I don't want to. I like the vibration of just being. I mean, I like it, and I don't. you understand what I mean? Exactly. Yes. Yes, a little bit. when wait. No, is it the? The question is: Is it the same as being at war with yourself? A, a little bit. It's a little bit like that. It's not being able to just relax and say, "I'm not ready to give this up." So, sort of, you hate yourself for not being ready to give it up. That's what I mean by being at war with yourself. It's like I, I'm not pleased when I realize that I want to hold on to this negativity a little more. I'm not ready to give it up. I'm not pleased with that. I, I no longer excoriate myself for that. It's just, there it is, and we, what can we do with it? Or I, I know that I shouldn't eat all this ice cream. I know that I ought to be a vegetarian and I'm not. I know that I ought to get up earlier and meditate more. I know that I have to be more regular. I know that. And then you're always excoriating yourself for not being good enough to do it. And that's what I mean by being at war with yourself. The opposite of that is to say, well, look at that. I'm just not ready to give this up yet. And to be able to just say, I will, but not today. And just to acknowledge that I'm not going to give it up. But what I was what I was going, which was, a, yours question was perfect. Is that clear? Where I was going with it is, you see, Kriya Yoga will dissolve it without you getting to do it anymore. So you have to be at a certain point of detachment even to bring yourself to Kriya Yoga where you're ready to burn whether you, whether you really want to burn up those scars, rather than just holding on to them. Because it's a perverse pleasure to hold on to those things. Uh, it, I, I hope that you understand what I mean because it's certainly clear to me. Because when it no longer serves you, you just let it go. But, but Kriya is a commitment to dissolve it all. And you have to be at a certain point of real sincerity where the two parts of you are still playing with each other when I when I would think about karma yoga, especially in my very early years at the village, when I would just watch myself work all the time. Well, I, I still work. Well, I still work a lot. Um, I work differently, but I was you know running the kitchen and things like that. And it was just constant, and I knew that all that selfless work was 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 eroding all my negative emotional states. It was it was. Um, weakening them. But I felt like that was a drag race. I felt like my negative emotional attitudes and my selfless service, they were always kind of going like this. And, and that I knew that someday that the, the selfless service would kind of cut off the negative self preoccupation because the negative emotional states were self-concern. What about me? What about me? What about me? Hey, what about me? <laughs> you know, the Vaisha, what am I getting back? Who's, who's paying attention to me? Who's praising me? Who's telling everyone how hard I work? you know? who's giving back to me? And I want you all to understand how much I'm doing. Don't you understand how much I'm doing? You know, just like God Almighty, <laughs> Or just nobody loves me. Nobody's ever loved me. Even those who pretend to love me don't really love me. You know it just goes on and on and on. But it, it's finite, and bliss is infinite. So this, this picture still, I still see this picture. My good intentions and my sincerity battling against my bad karmic habits in there. They just go like this. But this one will get ahead because this one is finite and this one is infinite. But, you know, that's a long space. But the Kriya is because somewhere along the line God believed me when I said I was really sick of it. So even if sometimes I'm not sick of it, I remember there was a period of time when I was, I was facing a lot of temp- very specific temptations that I, I, knew, I knew I really didn't want to um, follow, but nonetheless they were attractive to me. And so when I was meditating in the morning I would say to Master, give me an opportunity and you know what I'm going to choose. <laughs> and it's not going to be good. The only way out of this is that you have to keep me from any opportunity to go in the wrong direction. And then I would even say later today, I'm going to change my mind. <laughs> but uh, I, would, I made it through a lot of days that way. You know, my my uh, my wrong desires would be thwarted, even when I was even when I had lost connection with why I didn't want to follow them. He, he would just thwart me day after day. So I mean, that's sort of what happens at a certain point karmically. We we still have wrong desires, but enough of us wants to be free, that we start being able to melt those desires without having to live through them. And that, you know, then, then things really begin to shift. But still, it's just a long, tiresome path. That's why... Uh, but, it, you know, it's not, as Swami said, it's not like walking across a desert and suddenly coming, suddenly coming to an oasis. You know, it's a gradual greening of the desert. <laughs> it just gets more and more beautiful and more and more elevated. It's not all or nothing. It's not heaven or hell. But you know, it's it's very serious. Swamiji was very serious, and and he was lighthearted. But underneath his lightheartedness, there was this. Uh... Well, you know, that's what I mean when I say I sort of understand him. I started to use the word cynicism, and actually, it was, sort of was cynicism. He was very he wasn't cynical, but he was very cynical about the possibility of this world really ever making you happy. And it, it used to annoy me, you know. I just I thought it was he was it was such a downer, and he would be very cheerful and very positive. But there would there was this undercurrent of of um, melancholy. Is too strong a word, but he said it himself. If you're sensitive, he said you hear that undertone of sadness in all in all his music. That's what he said. He said you just hear it if you listen. And it's, it's an undertone of longing, of unfulfilled longing, which is a kind of sadness because you're wanting something that you don't yet have. And that's the power of his music. It's just it's it's profoundly sp- filled with spiritual longing, but that longing itself is uplifted, because when you get into the vibration, when you get into a vibration refined enough to know what it is you really want, that's a much higher vibration than just wallowing around in the mud of this world. And, but Swamiji's. Uh, Comple- complete conviction that no matter how nice it looked this world was just a place to escape from it, it used to distress me and I would try to I would try to tone it down I would try to reject it I would I just I ran away from it it frightened me I I want I didn't realize because I was so serious spiritually I was very serious but I didn't realize the extent to which I was still holding out hope <laughs> <laughs> that you know that somehow we could make it all work but i've come to see that he wasn't being cynical he was just being factual realistic and i i got more and more comfortable with it before he died i didn't have to wait till after he died it was more in my you know the first 20 25 years but he he was but but to be able to be that realistic and still be Enthusiastic and joyful. That was the balancing act that yeah, that I I'm, we're all working on. But that's the that's the one I still work on, because if I get as realistic as he got, sometimes it pulls me way down. But then I say, but he ended up very blissful, so it has to be okay. Yeah, very complicated. It used to be simpler. <laughs> okay, number three eight one. Churches often do good works, but few nowadays emphasize inner, prayerful communion with God. That is the true essence of spiritual teaching. Those churches are like beehives without honey, or like restaurants without food. When working, one should work also with the thought of God. Otherwise, he may earn good karma, but he won't come closer to him, for whose sake the churches are or ought to be built." Churches that don't emphasize devotion and inner communion by meditation are social institutions, not houses of God. The church should be a spiritual oasis in the desert of mundane consciousness. It should be an active beehive, busy producing the honey of God's love. He's pretty strong there, isn't he? My goodness. Well, you know... um, when we, when we started developing and having buildings like this and having the Festival of Light and things like that, um, re- rebellious, independent-minded devotees at Ananda were very upset because they thought we were becoming an institutional religion. And uh, I don't think that's true. An institutional religion is when the institution itself and its theology um, comes between the devotee and God. It, it, but when... The, you're organized enough and you have enough going on that people become inspired inwardly to feel closer to God, that's really something quite different. So that's what we always have to work with. And it is confusing and you, we do have to be careful because once we have more and more established you begin to think that the what's established is what we have. But the only thing that actually exists ever is whether or not the whatever Ananda is, awakens people to a deeper love for God. And if it does, then we're doing our job. And if it doesn't, it's, it has no value. Certainly no value in our reality. And, you know, I, I don't know what to think about the very emotionally devotional churches where there's a lot of... I, I, I was watching some um, little film and it was about Christian musicians and you know they're they're very dedicated to. I'm, I'm I'm very interested by in people's devotion to Jesus in that very intense personal way. I there's something about it that uh, I find admirable that I want to understand. You know because such people often are 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 very strong in that. I, I'm not. I don't want to exaggerate my interest in it, but it. I try to understand what it feels like. What would it feel like to be like that? But then their music, as Swami said, their music is... The vibration of their music is just the same, and they, they cultivate it. You know, drums and bass guitar and screaming vocals and and stomping feet. And, you know, just... It, it. But the words are, you know, the how I love you, Jesus. But the sound is just the same as all the popular music. As Swami said, they just put those words onto... The vibration is not shifted. But it, it gets people moving. It gets them active. It wakes them up. I think you're just... You're getting energy going and you're focusing it on this. But the, it it's, it doesn't end in stillness. It just creates a lot of excitement. When we were in Israel and at the River Jordan when I was there for the the first of my two trips recently. And we were at the River Jordan and we were having a little um, blessing ceremony at the River Jordan and there were two groups of people on either side of us. These were Americans and these were Africans. Maybe they were all Americans, but I think these were Africans. They were dark-skinned people, but I think they were from Africa. These people were from America. The Mar- Both of them were really noisy and the Americans were really noisy. And every time... anybody went into the water and they were doing a full immersion baptism, Um, everybody would cheer like it was a football game. (laughs) I mean, just this really loud, excited... And I realized that, you know, they knew that it was significant. They were there at the River Jordan being baptized. And being baptized at all was such a huge... um, landmark, line in the sand, because it would, be, it would have been accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And they were just repeating it by being at the Jordan. But they just didn't know how to express energy except rajasically, except outwardly. And, and so they kept making a lot of noise and, and screaming and cheering because they wanted to know that it was a big event. And it was so the opposite of how, when you get toward inner communion you realize that the the more still and quiet you are, the more energy there is. It's just, it's a it's a progression. But I, I think some of that screaming music is also, we're trying to have an intense experience. And the only way we know how to have an intense experience is essentially physically. But then this takes us back to where we were with Hongzha and the breath. When you realize that I am nothing but breath, then then all that physicality completely distracts you from the intensity. So it's all progressive, but Master came to um, r- awaken the world to a completely new understanding. So he spoke quite emphatically and unequivocally about what tr- what is true religion and what isn't. And he, he didn't really mince words, so there we are. The Holy Ghost of Emotion is what he called it. (laughs) Which is better than being, you know, drunk on the street. And a lot of times, if you've been that far down, you have to have something that's really clear-cut and really emphatic and allows you to grab it physically or else you don't have anything. So I have no objection to it. In Israel, you either had to surrender to it and enjoy it or you would spend all your time being annoyed. (laughs) Because that's what most people were doing. We were... One of the few that were quiet. But they were sincere. And it, I, I, I mean, it just got to be fun. It was like watching children, it was just delightful. <laughs> All right, God bless you. <laughs> so tonight we did. Um, we went three, from 377 through 381.